Welcome to Theatre Voice, a podcast about performance from the V&A. Two exciting things are happening to the King's Head Theatre on Upper Street in North London this year. First is the 50th anniversary of the venue, well, 52, but who's counting? And over that half century, it's become such an important space for new voices, for queer writers, for reimagined opera. In fact, it was the very first pub theatre. Some incredible plays had their premieres at the King's Head. Tom Stoppard's Artist Descending a Staircase, Victoria Wood's play Good Fun, and Hugh Grant even made his acting debut there in 1985. The other exciting thing is that the theatre now has two new artistic directors, Mark Ravenhill and Hannah Price. In this interview for Theatre Voice, Mark talks about his ambitions for the future of the pub theatre, including turning the venue into a centre for LGBTQ plus voices, along with an education and outreach element that sounds amazing. They will also, hopefully, be moving to a new, much larger space soon. Mark also talks about his career as a playwright, one of Britain's most influential, although that hasn't stopped him from writing libretti, directing and even the odd bit of acting. But Heather Neal does a much better job of breezing through Mark's amazing career, as you're about to hear. So let's get on with it. Heather Neal talking to Mark Ravenhill. Hello, Mark. Thank you for giving us time to talk to Theatre Voice. Well, you and Hannah Price have just become artistic directors of The King's Head, and we're going to be talking about that in a minute. But let's start with a quick run through your enormously (laughs) prolific career. You had a tremendous success in 1996. That started it all. Well, it was your first play, the first play anyone knew about. Anyway. That's right, yeah. Uh, Shopping and Fucking. And others followed very swiftly, including some explicit Polaroids and Mother Clap's Molly House, which was at the National Theatre in 2001, yeah. after which you became an associate there and a sort of advisor on yes, the book. Yes, for a few years, yes. And then you've, you've done all sorts of things, though. You've adapted the work of other writers and written opera libretti and a pantomime even. You've written for children and students and you've been a writer-in-residence at the RSC. You've had your work produced all over the world. I'm rushing through it because there's so much. And you're still writing your own work, of course, um, most recently The Cane at the Royal Court in 2018. Uh, if we don't count Angela, which was your radio, radio play. Lockdown audio During play, the lockdown, yes. yes. And then just before the lockdown, you wrote um, a musical version of David Walliams' very popular children's book, The Boy in the Dress, for the RSC. And as we speak, your latest outing, uh, Hitchcock's, a version of Hitchcock's Blackmail, is opening in Colchester. So good luck with that. Thank you. (laughs) So you don't seem to stop exploring genres and different ways of of creating and different audiences, sometimes collaboratively. Um, Is this to keep ideas fresh? Is it something you need to do? sort of, because when I first came to London, I was working in a new writing theatre theatre that's now called Soho Theatre and was then called Soho Poly Theatre. Mm. So we were producing entirely new plays and I was aware that quite a lot of writers have quite a short uh, sort of career. That And there's probably only so many original plays entirely from your head that are, that are in you. Um, mm. And so, you know, a lot of people do have just sometimes just one play and then they disappear or three or four or five um, but I, I was clear that once I'd actually got the opportunity to make a living from playwriting, which very, very few people ever even get that opportunity, that I wanted to carry on doing it until I dropped. 
So I was aware that you needed different stimuli along the way and and sometimes to adapt and work in different forms and just to sort of pace yourself, really. And when those totally original plays are ready to come, you allow space for them. But also you're a, you know, you're a working writer across different mediums and with different levels of collaboration is a way of, of sustaining yourself in all aspects of the world, sort of financially and artistically and everything, for a lifetime. Mm. So I think having observed other people, I had a bit more of a sort of strategy when I got going, whereas I think quite a lot of young writers, mm. who, and I was 30 when I started, so in terms of playwriting, that's relatively late. But, you know, I can see 20, 22, 21, 22-year-olds, that first play at Theatre Upstairs or The Bush or something, they sort yeah. of feel like... So exciting. Uh, it's so yeah. exciting, and yeah. I've arrived, but obviously at that age, and I wouldn't have done, you don't quite have a sense of, like, how am I going to? I want to, and if I do, how am I going to sustain this for a lifetime? Well, you've said, I think, that you were much impressed by a book by Keith Johnston about improv, and and that has played in... How on earth does that play into writing? I mean, do you... Well, that was one of the big realisations. So I'd I'd read the Keith Johnston improv book when I was at university and used it as sort of exercises when I was directing and devising something but then when I went back to read it years after university and read the introduction I realised it all began with the writers group at the Royal Court Keith Johnston was a young script reader and odd job man at the Royal Court and George Devine said oh I think we should have a writers group and there, there weren't really writers groups and nobody knew what writers groups were so Keith sat around with Angelico and uh, Edward Bond and Wesker, I think, and people in a in a space that then became the theatre upstairs, and sort of said, "Well, what, what does the writers group do?" So they knew they didn't want to just sit and read, and and uh, it just to be a sort of intellectual process. So Keith started to make up these exercises. So once I realised that actually the whole beginning of Keith's particular type of impro came from sitting and then standing up with <laughs> and working stuff out with a group of writers, I thought, "Wow, this is you know that's." That's great. So I started to use those exercises that in his book myself to, to create little writing exercises for myself, and that's really what got me started with my playwriting. But it, it is, it is, it did start with playwrights in the first place. Does that it? does that mean that you you don't plan when you start a play? You you don't know entirely how it's going to. No, I think well, the only playwrights have a big plan. But no, you yeah, I think even if they're not, even if they haven't. Read the Keith Johnson impro. <laughs> I think most playwrights will say there's just a sort of starting image or a sort of nagging question or a sound of a voice or something that, that gets them started. Yeah. And through, I mean, you write many, many drafts, but certainly when yeah. I think almost all playwrights, when you start the first draft, you just leap in and find out where are we and who are these people and what's happening. And I think that's I think that's more common than not. And does that process take a long time? I mean, does yeah, yeah. And, um, I would say the cane was written over sort of eighteen months, so that's not right. solid every day. But it's solid when you most, say written, that means actual writing time, drops. not not yeah. thinking about well, it. Well, and then so it. yeah, long periods of uh, sitting at the desk, and some days just the odd word comes in and then goes out again and comes mm. in again. Uh, but and then not, but not every single day. Sometimes I put it away for a few weeks, and then there would be a lot of walking, mm. walking the parks of London and thinking about it. Yeah, because a play is quite condensed, really, compared to a novel or something. It's a lot less words, but in a way, the the um, condensing of it is is the art. So you probably need as much 
uh, sort of material in your head and sort of stuff as you would for a novel. I'm guessing I've never written a novel, mm. but the art is then to take all that and really boil it down to yeah, a sort of Yeah, because you even cut characters, don't you, from oh, the first Oh, yeah, normally, yeah, yeah normally. Normally? Yes. Yeah, I think it's quite There's good very, to... There's only three in the cane. Yeah, you? and it starts <laughs> off with about eight or something. Oh. Yeah, yeah, so I think it's good to sort of... You find out more about the world of the play and if you create more characters in the first draft, I think, and then at the end of each draft, I have a sort of balloon debate with them and said, right, who's... <laughs> Who's really pulling their weights here? Uh, and and, then, and do they get tryouts, readings, or or is that all in your? I prefer in your, just to do it myself. Desk. I think. Mm. I mean, I have done in the past, but more and more as I go on, I think I really don't need to bring, you know. And it's not at my expense. It's normally at a thesis expense. All those people in to read and you know it costs money. And uh, when actually, if I'm honest, I could I can just finish a draft, sit on it for a few weeks, think, 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 and go back to it myself and rewrite it. So. Do you, do you work in much the same way as you did when you started? I mean, is it... I think so, yeah. Um, I like to think I've picked up a few things as I go along, but essentially, every time you start with a blank page, it's the same. I think it's probably more fear as you go on because you're more <laughs> aware that you don't... The sort of arrogance of youth has gone a bit and you're more aware of the pitfalls. Well, the world to begin with and your earliest ones, it was, it was quite a bleak world, wasn't it, where people... Everything was transactional. And, yeah. And... Um, but there seemed also to be some uh, sort of a need for kindness somewhere in there as well. Yeah, I think it was that, you know, I was at the... uh, Yeah, so I uh, arrived at secondary school, which I guess is a time when you become a bit more aware of an outside world, in 1978. (laughs) So the very last year of the Callaghan government into Thatcher. So all of my teenage years... Uh, my university years into my adult years, you know, I, I was dominated by that Thatcher, Thatcher government. So I think all that constant messaging about, uh, you know, there's no such thing as society and, and suddenly everything was the marketplace uh, was just something that was uh, that was just always there yeah. during all that growing up period. So yes, I think there were that those characters inhabit in that in those early plays are one in which everything's been sort of marketised and yet mm. they do find ways to well they're not even sure it's just interesting the things that they you know, can everything be absolutely marketised for them I and mean, I push it to sort of almost satirical mm. extremes in a way but they're trying to find out if there's, if there's any little any little gaps where some, they could do something or say something yeah. which and in a good and a bad way you know in some ways love can't be uh, some aspects of love can't be marketised, but there's some aspects of violence as well that sit outside of the market, maybe. Um, so, you know, it's not necessarily they always find positive mm. things about, about, about that sits outside of marketisation. Maybe sometimes there's mm. negative things. Certainly I was quite keen to find things that sat outside of irony, because uh, irony was such a dominant, dominant mode. Such I, a British thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah well, an American thing as well, that yeah. sort of Generation mm. X slacker sort of irony that you just regarded everything with a sort of cool irony. So certainly mm. some of the violence and things like that was a way of testing in order to say, how much can you just sit here and everything's a bit hip and a bit cool and a little bit shocking, but in a sort of cool way. At which point do you... And I think Sarah Kane was doing something similar. At which mm. point do you actually say, no, I 
I genuinely have a strong feeling, you know, I disagree with that. That shouldn't happen. That's actually wrong. Again, moral, moral relativism, which I think goes ties in with that. Right? How far does moral relativism go mm. before you, an audience will actually say, "I believe that something is wrong"? And I think maybe the, I think it's probably that's all pushed on. But I think there was that feeling in the '90s that that sort of irony and moral relativism, and there was sort of numbness mm. about certainly my generation's sort of response to things. Do you think that critics got it? I mean, you actually got very good reviews mostly, We did didn't get you? good reviews. I think I benefited yeah. quite a lot from Blasted having been uh-huh. very badly yes. reviewed. And I think quite... And people a, realizing My guess would be mistakes. quite a few critics thinking, oh, maybe I'm just a bit, you know, out of yes. what these young people are doing. So I think... I've, I've, well, that's my feeling. I've got no evidence for it. But my feeling is I probably benefited from being a year after blasted so I think more people came thinking I really need to try and understand what these young people are up to because <laughs> my editors said well look you know blasted is now being talked about as the most important play of the yeah. year and you, and you got it wrong <laughs> so I think I probably benefited from that yeah, yeah. well then coming up to Kane, uh, the Kane, your last yeah. your last original play um, you've only got three people in it and nothing is as explicit anymore there's still cruelty and power play and but it's it's played within a living room it's and yeah. and without anyone using the cane well they did they did use the cane they use the cane yes very little um physical violence or anything compared, compared yes. to yes you do you think you've moved more towards metaphor or away from the explicit probably or? i don't know i mean you just thought, you know I, I, uh, I was 29 when i wrote that first draft of Chopping and fucking, and I would have been fifty-two, fifty-three when I wrote the mm. cane. So I mean, I think anybody's going to have to do something very differently. But twenty-nine to fifty-three, aren't they? And yeah, maybe you, maybe you get. I guess maybe you get a little bit more control of your craft, so you can sort of. I mean, shopping and fucking does sort of exist by sort of a you know sort of like almost combustion engine sort of level of every ten minutes. There's something that really gives you a, yeah. a you know actually it's actually sort of shocking. So I guess maybe as you get more craft, but also maybe you just get a bit more middle aged. <laughs> but I guess the level of craft allows you to sort of sustain yeah. a level of sort of <clears throat> tension and conflict and all those things. Yes, I think you've said short, the shorter scenes were a sign that you were yeah certainly, certainly I learned, that's certainly one of the things I learned is to sustain much longer scenes yeah. I just couldn't have written a scene that lasted much longer than 10 minutes when I started and it's just, it is a sort of muscle I think to be able to sustain scenes so that was one of the things about writing the cane I really wanted it to be uh, it's essentially one long scene I mean it's it's in it's yeah. in real time so it's about 100 minutes of real time mm-hmm. Uh, and actually that's just in terms of getting people on and off and the amount of stuff that changes and happens in a hundred minutes it's, it's, there is a craft to doing that with you know essentially you know, obviously as in most places more things are happening and there's more exposition and more, than there ever would be in real life mm-hmm. but actually it does take quite a lot of experience I mm-hmm. think to, to do all that in one room in real time without it seeming really really clunky and inventing very false reasons for people to go off character and they say I need the loo so they can so they can be out of the room to miss the bit of stuff that they need to miss yeah. you know there's just some sort of excellent entrance sort of managing that you get yes. you learn more about I think that sounds on. very basic but it's absolutely crucial yeah they're really hard things really yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well the education as a 
as a subject. You're obviously interested in yeah. that, aren't you? And you always have been, it seems to me. Yeah, You've done, done a lot of community it, and education yeah, work. Yeah, pops up quite including, a lot. Including the National Theatre's connections. connections. And one of those places, citizenship, yeah. had quite a strong element yeah. of school and stuff. I think I really liked being at school. Well, I did really like being at school. I was quite fascinated by school and teachers and stuff, so I haven't consciously done it. But yeah, it does pop up quite a lot in the writing, sort of mm. school life and and stuff and and I and you know I'm very aware from my own experience uh yeah plays in schools and uh how much that really does if if you play a part or part of a play at a pivotal moment in your life that that your memory of that play and your connections with that play and the things you bring to it and it brings out of you are, are probably going to be very significant and probably more significant mm. than than a play that an adult goes to uh, you know, in a West End theatre of an evening, might, probably could have some big impacts on somebody, but I don't think it'll ever have quite that impact of learning those lines and working with that group and being in something when you're 12, 13, 14. That really can be quite a big part of shaping your personality and your worldview and stuff when you do mm. that show. So I think, yeah, so I, I found that I really wanted to do that. I really wanted to write those connections, please. So. Yes. And for, for this, for, for the, the cane, did you read a lot about the academy system and so on I mean I went to talk to some people I mean some mm. people are always it's amazing how much people will talk to you if you're writing a play I think much more than if you're a journalist people want want to help mm-hmm. you out so I just asked around and said who knows different people working in different situations in academy schools and there was one fantastic person who invited me to her house right at the end of the Metropolitan Line or something, sort of beyond Dickenham sort of way, sat in her garden for hours and hours, and I think she'd make me lunch and then tea and just talk me through everything that had happened in the academy school where she worked and all the changes and stuff, and for mostly for bad in her point of view, but some good I think she acknowledged. But so yeah, it was actually really, and that was but the longest conversation, and that was I never seen her before or since but she just very generous said oh I know somebody said I know this person and off I went to the end of the Metropolitan Line and got the vast majority of stuff about academy schools that were in the play was from that conversation with a complete stranger none of them come out of it terribly well in the end no (laughs) but you have said I think that you if you hear any of your characters say something that you could have said you cut it yes I'm quite wary of the characters expressing a point of view yeah. Uh, which is exactly you, the same of mine. Agit <laughs> yeah, because I think yes, I think there needs to be a bit of uh, yes. I always instantly maybe it's just me, but I always feel instantly flat to me if the character is saying something exactly that I think. So I try to find the characters who's got, who have some understanding of what they believe. But if it's completely same as mine, I find that sort of undramatic. Really, I want to be able to. Mm engage with each of the characters and their point of view and, and stuff and and also have questions and queries and, and actually arguments with all of their yeah. points of view so I and don't it's, have it's, it's, yeah, it's you know. good if um, yeah. sympathies change in the audience and I really from love one that. to another I really yeah. love that I love that yeah. I love that shifting thing when you know even line by line and audience thinking who do I believe who do I trust who do, <laughs> whose side am I on to me that's just much more sort of dynamic and dramatic really I mean obviously there is other forms melodrama and stuff which are hugely enjoyable where you clearly know who you're who's in the right and who's in the wrong but that doesn't seem I, I and you'd like them to go away and con- continue to talk about it afterwards and the ideas yeah, that's go fine. on always, yeah. yeah good if there's more going on yeah yeah 
So, yeah, just for me, that seems to be... I like that. I need that sort of dynamic when I'm writing that I'm not sure who's right and who's wrong. So, well, we got a bit onto education, um, and that is very relevant to your new uh, job. Is it a job? Can you call it that? Your new incarnation. Incarnation, yeah. (laughs) As a co-artistic director of the King's Head. Yeah. Because you're, you're very keen to have an education element in it, aren't Yeah, you? I think one of the nice, good things would be, as the King's Head moves forward, because the plan is to move to a new yes. a new building, yes, subject to the final bits of capital fundraising and stuff. I mean, it's not all signed, sealed, delivered. But uh, being in a pub, uh, one of the things that King's Head's never been able to do is work with children and families and young people and stuff. So the chance of having... Uh, our own theatre is is allows that to become possible, and I think there's real possibility of uh, doing work with young people, LGBTQ plus people. I think there's still the rates of homelessness, suicide, all sorts of things are s- so much higher amongst uh, LGBTQ plus teenagers, and it feels as though things have progressed so much, and yet the actual s- statistics are scary about. Uh, all sorts of things are much, much higher. So um, I think giving those young people a sense of uh, LGBTQ plus history and 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 things to do with uh, sort of health and uh, mental health and things like that, but also literature and and even sort of geography and science and stuff. So uh, we're keen to do a thing uh, called Queer School, which would be a, a couple of weeks in the summer where young people who identify as LGBTQ plus could have come and sort of have an alternative curriculum and try and get experts in their fields to come, but basically take any subject that you would have at school and put queer in front of it so <laughs> queer literature queer history queer sport queer uh, and and create a sort of alternative syllabus in a way but but then make those materials available and hopefully uh, mainstream schooling could pick up on the materials mm. and stuff and the and the uh, Classes would be available online and stuff. So, in the first place, in real life, as it were, uh, it would probably be sort of 20 young people spending that time. But I think the impact could be could be a lot bigger. The the theatre, as you see at the King's Head, is going to be a kind of LGBTQ. I think that's going to be the centre. That's going to be the focus of the work. Yeah, yeah. So um, I think there's a lot of. there's a lot of exciting companies coming through with that area of work, and I think it just lends itself very naturally to theatre stuff to do with identity and sexuality and mm. costuming and clothes and gender and all those things are in many ways sort of inherently theatrical. So I think it, I think it makes for good theatre, and I think this and it's become such a broader range of things that. Uh, you know, particularly parents of my generation are finding their kids have got all sorts of words to do with non-binary and trans and cis and all these things that people of my age are trying to catch up with. But I think there's a whole sort of range of identities and work there that isn't hasn't yet fully, or something that hasn't yet fully reached fruition and it doesn't yet have a sort of central home for that. So I, I think there's a potential to, to create a really uh, buzzy place with really good work that's genuinely could make a unique contribution to the theatre ecology. Well, you, and, you and Hannah Price 
both have very uh, successful careers of your own. Are you going to be contributing to any of the actual material that goes on in the theatre? Yeah, so um, certainly Hannah will Hannah will direct. So Hannah's yeah just about to open her big underneath the Tower of London. She's doing this massive immersive project. Uh, which is going to run for 10 years. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> and, Time to catch it. And it's it. <laughs> costing millions and millions of pounds. So, so she's in the rehearsals for that today, and they've got virtual reality and live actors. Yeah, she's a, a digital... Yeah, she's very she? big on digital. Yeah. So she's... she's uh, we don't really get much of Hannah until sort of May, when that's open. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so they'll be looking for shows for Hannah to direct. And uh, I will certainly do lots of... Uh, but you direct as well. You directed yes. Head, I mean, Hannah, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, hmm. I, mean, I think the main thing is to find the best things for Hannah to direct, and then I'll, I'll do a little bit. But also, you know, I'm, I think I'm good at the sort of literary management side of things. So there's quite a lot of what I'll do will come under that. And then I think if something comes up, probably won't write totally original plays for the King's Head. I think my sort of totally original play head will still. Uh, you reckon you'll still have time yeah, for that? Yeah, yeah. We're going to make time for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So I think they'll go somewhere else. But I think if we needed, like, a new English acting version of something that had come through a translation or or a book adapted for a Christmas show or something mm-hmm. like that, I think I would... I think I'll probably do, like, literary jobs at this, mm-hmm. for stuff that goes on rather than... And, and pr- 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 keep my sort of... Uh, in You know original playwriting or something separate. That's my instinct. You're still going to have opera? Yeah, yeah. That's been very popular with the King's Hills audience. And I'm a big opera fan. So, yeah, yes. we'll definitely be keeping the opera and growing that. I think there's always been a space, since I've been in London, there's always been a space for a sort of uh, company that does sort of cheeky reinventions yeah. of opera. There was Music Theatre London... For years, who used to do things at the Drill Hall and the Arts, and then the King's Head sort of discovered it when first thing with this young bohem, which won an Olivier Award that year for yeah. opera. So I think I think there's always room in London for one sort of irreverent, cheap and cheerful sort of reclaiming of the op- opera repertoire. So uh, I, th- I think it's yeah, I think it's. And you, you perhaps will be writing libretti before? Yeah, although that's really, really hard work. I wrote the libretti for The Coronation of Bopea, which is the thing yeah. that I did at the King's Head. And, oh, my God, it was like doing the hardest crossword puzzle ever. I realised it was going to be really hard, so I could, I just, I, for about a year, I did just an hour every morning like doing a crossword puzzle. And I would get about four bars or something done every morning because oh it's got to hit the beat and, you know, it's, there's a complete rhythm and then it's got stresses within that yeah. and then it's got to obviously hit the syllable count I mean I, I, I gave up doing the rhyming that there was in Italian because it's really easy to rhyme in Italian, Italian yes. and it's much yeah. harder to rhyme in English yeah. so I realised and, and, and rhymes land a lot harder in English because yeah. uh, everything ends you know with a sort of mia or maya or whatever in Italian you, there's thousands of rhyme choices and the ear doesn't hear them so loudly Whereas once mm. you put rhyme into English, it quite quickly sounds like GNS and stuff. <laughs> yes. So f- first I was putting all this effort into finding rhymes and then realised actually it wasn't really honouring what happens in Italian because they don't ping out at you in Italian that way. Mm. And and plus it was doubling the time I was spending on it finding all these rhymes that then sound... Very good to be to spend so long with that music, though, I should oh, think. Oh, just <laughs> amazing. Oh, yeah. yes, just that's the... Yeah, the, the Monteverdi is great. Yeah. And yeah, when I've directed opera, because I've done a bit before that, yeah, just to be surrounded all day long by people singing. Mm-hmm. 
it's actually creates I just think creates incredible resonance in the room. You sort of feel like you've had a massage by the end of each day because mm. all that sound bouncing off your body. Mm. It's I think it's I have seen no scientific evidence, but it feels to me like it's a very healthy thing to have all that sound resonating around mm. you all day long. Mm. It's gorgeous. One thing we haven't mentioned, which we should have, is the King's Head's 50 years old, actually 52 years old. Yeah, we had to slightly cheat because the, yeah. the real 50th happened during COVID. So yeah. we had a 50th celebration a couple of weeks ago, and that was a chance to go through the archives and have a look. And actually we did one event at the, the V&A on the Monday of the week, and that was a Tim Blake Wurtenbaker play that had been played at the King's Head at lunchtime and genuinely been sort of lost. Tim Blake didn't have it. Uh, but it had been okay. stored in, I think, in the V&A archive. Mm. Uh, so, uh, it, yes, when I told Timberlake that we wanted to do it, you know, she said, oh, I don't have it, can I have a read? <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, so there were some re- total rediscoveries like that. Again, a Bryony Lavery play that Bryony had lost all track of and asked me, could you send it to me so I can read it? And Bryony said, what a strange little play. <laughs> I said, no, I think it'll really stand up. I don't think it did. So there were ones that were genuine sort of rediscoveries like the Anna Stephen Jeffries play and then and then plays that have been in print but started just to remind people that they started the King's Head, like the Tom Stoppard artist ascending a staircase, which went incredibly the same production went from the King's Head to the West End to Broadway. It's very strange to think this little room behind a pub, the same production went to Broadway. Uh, and a Victoria Wood play. Hence the name of the season. From Barstool's to Broadway. And this Victoria Wood play, uh, Good Fun, which uh, she'd actually never allowed to be uh, performed again. Mm. Was so it just, just after or just before Talent? Was it Just after, but mm. I think she felt that she felt more satisfied with Talent. So right. she actually, there were people granted rights to do further productions. Mm. But actually that was people's first chance to hear anything of Good Fun since it had premiered, well it premiered at Sheffield Crucible and then came into the King's Head in about 1980, 81, so it's sort of 40 years since anybody had heard mm-hmm. that play, although it was you know, in print so it was, a, it was a great range, but it was really great to look back and see uh, you know, yes the King's Head had played a sort of pivotal role in lots of these the things. The King's Head was, was the first pub Very theater, first. wasn't it? Yeah, so when you think about the landscape uh, 1970, Dan, who I presumably had Dan seen Crawford, si- Dan mm. Crawford, who presumably mm. had seen similar things in America, certainly cafe theatre and stuff, uh, had this idea of well, if I bought because he bought the whole building, if I, and I ran this theatre pub, he called it a theatre pub <laughs> rather than a pub, pub theatre, theater. and then fairly quickly the sort of pub theatre movement took off, but it literally was the only place in London at the time that had that combination. And if you think of the landscape around it, there was no Almeida there. No. And the, on Upper Street now, there's several pop theatres. There's the uh, Little Angel was the there. Red, I think it probably was. Yeah. Uh, but there was now on Islington Upper Street. There's the Old Red Line. There's the Hen and Chickens. There's the Hope. There's actually a whole range of pop theatres, yeah. plus the Almeida. Uh, and so, yeah. So and even the Hampstead Theatre would have just started a couple of years before in their smaller theatre but there was no mm. tricycle and there was no so you know there was it, it, it was when he when he Dan Crawford founded the King's Head it was a, it was a London without any pub theatres mm. uh, and without any Bush Theatre Donmar Theatre so, uh, Soho Theatre mm. started around about the same time mm. in a Verity Vargas it yeah. moved around quite a few times it started off we think in uh, 
sort of behind a Chinese restaurant for a few months yeah. and then moved to a pub somewhere. It was a bit. It was quite itinerant for a while. Probably It was quite itinerant for the first few years. So yeah. theatre. So so yeah, it, it was it was very much uh, a unique thing. I think. Yeah. When it started. Well, it was ways, very rough and ready when it started, and you did literally and sit and eat your dinner yes, while and you it was were a supper theatre as well. Yes, yeah, yeah. While yeah. you were watching. Well, it's going to be very different now because you're going to have a, a a place which is a bit more like the Donmar or something. Might, well, it's going to have be... a balcony, and so that's the architect's drawing. So, uh, yeah. You presumably don't want to lose the connection with the old rough and ready, though. As... It's getting the balance right, isn't it? Mm. I mean, I think, you know, we have all... As much as we'd like to think we haven't, we have, we have all changed. <laughs> I mean, in 1970, most of yeah. us didn't have central heating. <laughs> uh, you know, I... I'm sure you yeah. were the same, and so you know my childhood, and that wasn't because we were particularly poor. But you know, wake up, frost, yeah. frost on the inside oh, of the window, yeah. jump out of bed. I mean, we have all got used to things being more comfortable. So I think the level of grottiness at the King's Head is much. We feel it much more now, and the, the dressing rooms are appalling, and the loos are appalling loo, and stuff. Yeah. And I think you know, I think a generation that some of them have been born during the war, certainly you know the first generation of actors and stuff mm. and people working at the King said grew up with rationing and then mm. and even and even when you were an actor going out and around digs in the seventies probably used to maybe, you know, one little bar heater and stuff like that and nobody I, I think our tolerance for absolute grottiness mm. is is maybe maybe we should be tougher but we're not. <laughs> so I think actually having giving actors decent dressing rooms, decent loos yeah. and the audience uh, somewhere that's just a bit, a bit cleaner and stuff. Do the audience ever complain about that? I mean, I can, it, yeah, I, and yeah. A- actors I mean, are used to terrible things on the fringe anyway, aren't they? But I'm, I'm not they, saying they should be. Certainly, yeah. <laughs> I think, um, yeah. I mean, if you think about the people who used to uh, in the seventies and eighties, mm. I, I think the whole thing about the King's Head was it was a real that you there were quite experienced actors and quite famous actors actually mm. doing stuff as well, mixing with new talent. And I think that's really good if brand new people can work with experienced people. And I think I think it's I think no actor should have to put up with that level of cramped dressing room and loo and it's just really unpleasant. But I think particularly if we want to renew that thing of older and more experienced and sometimes namey actors working alongside new talent then you have to the facilities have to be mm. have to be better and what about ticket prices but you presumably the building still you, you've got funding of course haven't you you've got we've got we're raising capital money so that mm. actually pays to go for the build but it doesn't subsidize the work so no. the work is still it's essentially small commercial theater you know the work is unsubsidized but uh Nowadays, you want to pay people, whereas original fringe often wasn't. Mm. So a lot of profit share and things like that, and then people and got eventually, no profit. <laughs> yes, people eventually wised up to there ain't ever no profit. So nowadays, you know, we pay uh, with what well, an equity agreement and stuff. So you pay people the going rate for for sort of small scale work. So it does cost more. Uh, so yeah, but. The main income is is from the ticket sales and from the box office. So yeah, that's actually paying for everybody's wages. Did you always want to run a theatre, or was it the King's Head that you wanted to run? I mean, I think I have been interested for a long time in, uh, and I guess I've always been interested in it. And uh, and then during the pandemic, uh, I did quite a lot of mentoring online of writers, and then I was doing every night doing these Saturday night play readings and. 
and so I was sort of working working quite a lot during the week with notes for the writers getting the scripts ready and then just from friends but then casting these play readings and, and actually once you're running things it's funny how much people come to you with so like the that. pandemic's had quite an important yeah. uh, influence yeah. on it's funny this. how much people when you're running things like that people also come to you with their personal problems it's funny it's sort of because because they can't do the casting and then they'll phone you up and they'll actually tell you about what you know some personal thing and so you're managing people's lives as well a bit somehow you try not to but you know it's going to be a very very big job so so actually during the pandemic i had all this sort of uh i was sort of (laughs) programming a little (laughs) theater in a way and i thought i'm really enjoying this and and as it got to the end i thought i don't want to just go back to just sitting by my own writing a play i want to continue this experience of managing a team of people and all these deadlines and stuff so i was looking around and uh idly looking around I wouldn't say I was massively looking around but then I saw the job ad for the King's Head and I thought well, that's perfect Are you going to be commissioning a lot of writers will it all be new work or will there be uh, I think well not if you're doing opera presumably they won't all be a new opera No the operas tend to be sort of yeah famous titles I think it'll be, it will essentially be new work I think um, well, you know we'll do, we'll do a, a a big Christmas show or with a longer run, so something close to a panto for Christmas, and uh, so it'll look more like, in some ways, it'll look more like a sort of you know regional rep theatre in terms of the range of stuff that we put on than say a new writing theatre. Mm. So yeah, Christmas shows and half term shows for the little kids and stuff like that, and some and some new plays and some opera and some musicals and. Um, How far ahead do you plan? Well. As we get up to speed, really, you'd want to be at least six months in advance, up to a year. But that's running to catch up with ourselves coming out of the pandemic. So, so you know, and I think there's room in there for some sort of uh, classic, classic. I mean, not 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 the classics in with huge RSC cast, but I think it'd be great to do some of those famous sort of titles with LGBTQ plus sort of characters, The Killing of Sister George and Rope. And I think, you know, there's those sort of mm-hmm. war horse sort of plays that have those sort of characters. I think I think they could be, if we can get the rights. I mean, I think they could be a good part of the mix as well, mm-hmm. alongside. Is it going to be exclusively uh, LGBTQ? I think... Pretty much. But I think if you had a fantastic piece of work... Um, yeah, I, I, I think LGBTQ enough that it, that's definitely the heart and the centre of what of, of what you're doing. But I'm I don't think so exclusively writers. that we'd actively, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. Um, but you know, but not, not never say never. I mean, I think if something mm. was fantastic and so you might find talent coming out of your summer school, of course, wouldn't you? Yeah, so. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Heather Neal was talking to Mark Ravenhill. Theatre Voice is an audio archive of conversations about British theatre and there are hundreds more interviews on theatrevoice.com, so have a look. The producers are Tim Bano and Helen Gush. Thanks for listening. Thank you.